I'm sorry. I... I wonder... You think I could just crash out on your couch here for a couple hours? I am just beat. Why don't you just go home? Well, I've been asking myself that one all night long. So? So what happened? Why can't you? All right. I met this girl tonight, okay, in a coffee shop. She gave me her phone number. So when I got home, I gave her a call. She said to come on over. On the cab on the way down here, all my money flew out the window. Then I got to know this girl, and I didn't really get along with her that well. It didn't really work out, so I left. I tried to take a subway tonight, but the fare went up. Did you know that, that the fare went up? Yes. You knew that? I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about that. So I haven't got enough money to get home until I meet this bartender, a really nice guy who wanted to lend me the money. I mean, he really wanted to give me the money, but, I mean, they'd actually purchased this piece of work here, you know? I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about that. Now, she's also pissed off at me, and for this, I don't blame her at all, for the way I treated her friend, and it was inexcusable, so I marched right in there to apologize, but she'd already killed herself. I was too late. So I remember that... And he was just about to give me the money when all of a sudden his phone rang. His girlfriend killed herself tonight. Huh? Is that a coincidence? No, because the same girl who I came downtown to see was dead, too. That's because they're the same person. They're both dead. I couldn't believe that. Now, he didn't know that I knew that I came down to, you know, his girlfriend. Because, I mean, he would have he would have taken my face and he would have he just smashed it. Luckily, there was this girl who was there who witnessed the whole thing who let me use her phone. Really nice about it, too. Let me use the phone. That was it. Just use it. Pick it up and put it down. Pick it up and put it down. So now she's the one in the Mr. Softy ice cream truck who's trying to kill me. They're all trying to kill me. I mean, I just wanted to leave, you know, my apartment, maybe meet a nice girl. And now I've got to die for it, you know? Oh, that's the girl. That is Julie. That's her. That's the girl. Look, Julie. Julie. Julie, it's me. What are you doing? Come here. Oh, God. That's the one. That's the one. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 278, After Hours. A movie that preaches one of our favorite lessons, which is, folks, just stay home. (laughs) Don't bother. No, it's not worth it. Whatever you think is out there for you, it's not going to work out the way you envision Maybe not the Scorsese movie that people would expect us to cover next, but here we are. Thanks yeah. for checking us out. It is a weird Scorsese one. You and I were just going through his filmography, really. Obviously, the stuff that's coming to mind is your, your good fellas, Taxi Driver. I mean, not that there's not comedy worked into his career. There definitely is. But it, it's definitely a lighter film for him during this era. It's sort of a weird combination though it's yeah that's it's true it's not lighter, devoid of it's, darkness yeah it's almost unlike 
most movies. Yeah, There's true. not really a lot of comps to this movie in terms of tone, right. I think. But we'll have plenty of time sure. to get into it. Folks, you know the drill. Follow us on Twitter, at GreatestPod, and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. And you can reach out to us on Twitter for a free sticker. And for anything else you'd like to say to us, you can also give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, which would be great if it was five stars. <laughs> anything less would not be great. Less than ideal. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. Full disclosure, we are recording this in advance, similarly to what we did in July. It seems like we're going to be doing that a couple of times in the next month or two to we stay ahead of the schedule. So Big plans. We are recording this on the same day we, that we recorded the Adventureland Revisited episode, so who knows what's going to happen between now and when we post it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're not talking about the After Hours Amazon Prime series that's coming out because we don't know about it yet. <laughs> yeah, something has happened. Yeah. Who knows? After Hours came out in 1985, and it was directed by Martin Scorsese with a screenplay by Joseph Minion. The budget was $4.5 million and the box office was $10.6 million. It received mostly positive reviews, and it has achieved what most would consider a cult status. It's a little bit under the radar as far as the noteworthy Scorsese releases. It's a part of a pretty interesting decade for Scorsese, the 1980s. Definitely. Where he started out doing his thing with Raging Bull and King of Comedy, and then it seemed like it just took forever for The Last Temptation of Christ to get off the ground, which is a big thing with this movie. And so in the meantime, he makes this movie After Hours, which seems much more of an indie smaller budget type deal and then he makes the big crowd pleaser with the color of money which is a sequel to the hustler paul newman wins the oscar and then finally they're like okay here's the funding to make the last temptation of christ which is what he was trying to do all along but i think that after hours is just a reminder of the endless vitality of scorsese there's this frenetic pace to this movie and it it's like run and gun down and dirty I know that the movie itself got Scorsese out of a malaise. He credits it with reinvigorating himself and his career. That's great. Yeah, it does have this sort of like, we're making it up as we go feel, which like there's an excitement to that. And he's showing off with the camera a lot and cramming in a lot of tricks and weird stuff and having a lot of fun with it. It also fits in with what was sort of a style during the time or like an idea during the time with New York... Maybe not upper class, but sort of yuppie getting carried into the underworld, usually by some girl, and it's sort of comedic. That was definitely like a brand in the 80s. Yeah, it, it's a part of a larger thing, the yuppies in peril yeah, yeah. genre, which that is like one version of it is like the one wild night. Or it can be more than a night, but sort of sucked into right. a whole new life kind of a thing. But there's also movies like fatal attraction or basically anything with michael douglas that sort of fit in with that too <laughs> yeah. upper middle class people getting pulled into heightened situations outside of their everyday lives that kind of an idea and it's maybe one of the more quintessential if only there were cell phones dot 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 oh, style yeah. movies right. it's just a completely different time and foreign idea where our 
protagonist is trapped in the same city he lives in, but he's just too far away to just walk. Yeah. And he can't get home, and he can't call anyone, and he doesn't have any money. And yes. Just a lot of things that wouldn't really be the same nowadays. I know we talk about it all the time, but cell phones did ruin a certain element to storytelling. Like, it just eliminates so many potential problems. Problems that would be fun to play with do not exist now. Yeah, and you have a lot of times the filmmakers or writers now concocting ideas where the cell phones are eliminated from the equation just to get back to this kind of playing field that you used to have. The studio abandonment of The Last Temptation of Christ left Scorsese disappointed and without a project. He gets in touch with Griffin Dunn and A.B. Robinson, who had a production company called Double Play Company. They have the rights to this script called One Night in Soho, which was written by Joseph Minion. The film was originally to be directed by Tim Burton, who we just talked about recently. Yeah. But Scorsese read the script during the time when he couldn't get financial backing for The Last Temptation of Christ, and so Burton gladly stepped aside when Scorsese expressed interest in directing it. But there is some controversy with the script, which doesn't really have much to do with Scorsese. I guess you're a little backstory here makes sense because i did notice that griffin dunn's name pops up in the producer section of the credits yeah the first 30 minutes of the film are based on radio artist joe frank's 1982 npr playhouse monologue called lies some of the dialogue and plot elements in the film are lifted verbatim from the program including paul meeting marcy in the deli the bagels and cream cheese paperweights (laughs) Paul calling Marcy that same night to buy the paperweights. Paul losing his cab fare when it flies out the window. Marcy being raped by a former boyfriend who came down the fire escape and falling asleep during said rape. Marcy being married to a man working overseas whom she writes to every day. And said husband's sexual quirk, which is one of the funniest parts of the movie. Joe Frank filed a lawsuit against the producers and was then paid handsomely in an undisclosed settlement. So... Joseph Minion did sort of take something that already existed and then incorporated that into it and then added on to it because it's like the first 30 minutes of the movie uh-huh. and then everything that comes later, I guess, is original. But it is sort of weird that, <laughs> yeah. that that would happen. Scorsese saw his work on After Hours as a nod to Hitchcock's style, the elaborate camera movements, and then the score, which emulates the work of Bernard Herrmann at times. But ultimately, After Hours is a screwball comedy meets film noir. Right. Which leaves it with sort of a weird tone. Yeah, it's almost like a dark comedy, though, in a way. Yeah, yeah. Because that is probably the biggest thing that you need to adjust to. And I think the first time you watch the film, it's a little jarring. Yeah. Some of the stuff that happens and how it's treated and received in the film and how even all of this terrible stuff that happens is all essentially played for laughs in the sense that, oh, look at what's happening to me <laughs> yeah. now. I can't catch a break. And, and some of it's stuff that you wouldn't tend to laugh at normally. No. It was the first film of Scorsese's in what would become his long collaboration with German cinematographer Michael Bauhaus, who had worked with Fassbender and therefore knew all about low budgets, fast shooting schedules, and passionate directors. It was shot entirely at night, sometimes with on-the-spot improvisation of camera movements, as in the famous shot where Paul Hackett 
played by Griffin Dunn. The hero rings the bell of Kiki Bridges, played by Linda Fiorentino, and she throws down her keys, and Scorsese uses a POV shot of the keys dropping towards Paul. In pre-digital days, that really had to happen. They tried fastening the camera to a board and dropping it toward Paul with ropes to stop it at the last moment, with Dunn risking his life in the process. Wow. But after that approach produced out-of-focus footage, Bauhaus came up with a terrifyingly fast crane move. Other shots, Scorsese said, were in the spirit of Hitchcock, fetishizing close-ups of objects like light switches, keys, locks, and especially faces, because we believe a close-up underlines something of importance to a character, Scorsese exploited that knowledge with unmotivated close-ups. Paul thought something critical had happened, but much of the time it had not. In an unconscious way, an audience raised on classic film grammar would share his expectation and disappointment. Pure filmmaking. And that's from Roger Ebert's review of After Hours. Okay. He loved the film. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the film itself parallels Scorsese's own struggles with The Last Temptation. It's sort of hard to see that on the surface, but Scorsese has talked about it in years after. Yeah, that it makes sense now to me. It's just this futile effort that right. he keeps getting close to and then it doesn't happen and then yeah. things keep changing and getting pulled away from him. Well, and there's definitely like this narcissistic existence to the main character. Good and bad, everything around that's happening all has to do with him and is happening to him. Yeah. You know? One of the things that people have picked up on that's a recurring theme in After Hours is emasculation by women. And there's definitely references throughout the film to castration. And at one point, there's literally a drawing of a shark biting a man's erect penis in a bathroom <laughs> yeah. to, to just spell it out for you. That's like pretty good artwork. But different things happen at different times, and people say certain words at certain times and emphasize certain things. And you can kind of pick up on it, whether it's the mouse traps around Julie's bed or the way that Marcy says, and then I just broke it off in the way that she sort of emphasizes right. it. It sounds like she's talking about breaking off a penis. It, it's yeah, stuff yeah, you have yeah. to kind of uh -huh. pick up on, but it, it just runs throughout the film that he's always sort of overpowered and emasculated by these women, especially in moments of intimacy where he can't seem to bridge the gap, especially right. with Marcy early on in the film where he can't quite seem to get on the same page Close and she's deal rejecting there. him yeah. and whatnot. From the very opening of the film, Scorsese and Bellhaus are showing off with the camera. Oh, yeah. There's some fascinating zooms and movement in the office. It, it brings this unexpected energy to the visuals. Yeah, there's like a frenetic pace to it. Because right away, it's just dudes in a generic 1980s office. Doing a job that we wouldn't think exists as word processors. Well, it was a different time. Yeah. The world wasn't online, right. so everything had to be entered it's basically just a low-level data entry job you have paul hackett as mentioned played by griffin dunn of an american werewolf in london fame that's right and his buddy lloyd played by oh, bronson yes. pinchot from perfect strangers balky <laughs> in the mix as always something i only know from doing the show with you and hanging out with you Perfect Strangers was on the air on a major network for eight years. Never never had seen an episode. I know, but you're acting like it's some obscure <laughs> reference. Now, Mama's Family I can okay. get on board with because maybe you just missed it. But 
Perfect Strangers was on a long time on ABC. All right. Well, I credit you for opening my eyes to what should have been obvious. <laughs> yeah, you should have been watching Perfect Strangers. Your life would be so much better. Really? They work these boring, mindless jobs doing data entry. Right away, you're noticing the prevalence of unibrows back in this time period. Oh, yeah. You do wonder, as these movies get updated to sharper scans, like, it's just <laughs> it's not flattering for some of these types of things. Yeah. Well, I just think that in decades past, you could have more unique and differing and interesting looks. Yeah. For men and women on film. A lot of people that were considered leading men and leading ladies, they wouldn't survive Oh, totally. In a 2022 <laughs> world where everybody is super airbrushed and has perfect teeth and perfect hair. Yeah. Manicured. I definitely think we're heading towards less Paul Giamatti's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Later that evening, after work, Paul is reading alone in a cafe when a young woman strikes up a conversation with him out of the blue. Have you ever considered doing this? Doing what? Reading a book? Reading somewhere? Yeah, sitting in a cafe by yourself reading a book. It might work if this movie teaches us anything. I might have done it. I yeah. can't really remember. I, I wouldn't be against it. I definitely would not approach a woman who's reading a book, which is something that you hear a lot about now on Twitter. Like Women can't go anywhere and exhibit an interest in something because, because it just, yeah. it's endless, like flies swarming around <laughs> yeah god forbid they're reading something like dune or something <laughs> you know it's just gonna be a <laughs> an endless barrage of people yeah yeah her name is marcy played by rosanna arquette and she tells paul that her roommate kiki is a sculptress who makes and sells plaster of paris paperweights designed like bagels and cream cheese yeah the idea of a paperweight being something that anyone would buy for any reason I know. It's just, Talk about a scam. Which they actually do kind of even make a joke about it in this movie because he's like, all the papers back at my apartment running rampant because I don't have any paperweights. I love that book. Thank you. I love that book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think Miller's... Really great. This is not a book. This is a prolonged insult. A gava spit in the face of art. A kick in the pants to truth, beauty, God. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> that's very good. Well, that's all I remember. I've read this before. I, I mean, I don't, I'm just rereading it. I don't reread books that often, but uh, I don't know. This one's my favorite. I like it better than Capricorn or Plexus or. Sexist. <laughs> you know, he used to kiss himself after he ate a good meal. It's mostly, uh... Yeah. Let me ask you. Does that cashier seem a little weird to you? He keeps making these strange movements. Just waiting to be discovered. Mm. You want another coffee? No, I'm gonna head over to my friend's house. Which way are you headed? Downtown Seoul. Oh, nice. 
The loft? Yeah. She's a sculptress. Lately, she's been making these plaster for Paris bagels and cream cheese. Really? Yeah, she's trying to sell them as paperweights. Wanna buy one? Paperweight? Yeah, I would. How much are they? I don't know. Well, if you think you might be interested, her number's 243346 and she almost intentionally makes it difficult for him where she just says it once and he his pen isn't writing and then he has to go get a different pen and it's yeah, a whole yeah. ordeal and she's already left and it's almost miraculous that he's able to remember it at all. And it is a reminder that meeting people can be chaotic and awful and hard and everything is precarious. Yeah. Put me in this situation. If she tried commenting on the book I was reading, I just wouldn't even respond. <laughs> well he takes so long to respond yeah. that you almost think that he's ignoring her at first I guess it is unexpected at least they play that into the movie because I mean listen I don't think this is happening for most people this is the song of the siren this is the warning that trouble awaits she's luring him into maybe not rocks to crash into like uh-huh. in the famous version of sirens on an island or whatever but she's luring him into the night and now he's going to go on this chaotic journey with the hope of sex which is really the motivator behind everything in the film is that he thinks that he's going to hook up with this lady right because when he gets back to his apartment he wastes little time he calls the number under the pretense of buying one of those paperweights <laughs> yes Marcy says she's glad he called. She actually repeats it, says it multiple times, and then invites him over. It's quite a trek down to Soho from where Paul is living in New York, and it's already after 1130 at night. He only has a single $20 bill. But Paul goes for it, hailing a cab. Yeah, I don't think that debit cards, bank cards were as common back then. It was a much more cash-oriented world, I think. So it doesn't really surprise me that he doesn't have any other options for money. He's a young guy. He's probably not making like a lot of money. Sure. Word processing, not exactly. Knocking it out of the park. Yeah. And obviously we've already covered the lack of cell phone, lack of communication. It, it really is one of those things where you're just sort of trusting the world that everything's going to work out. You're heading right. out somewhere you've never been with not that much money, no way to get in touch with people really other than pay phones, I guess. And you're acting on blind faith. And things, of course, go horribly wrong. (laughs) As expected. Very recently, I saw some tweets that were more or less goofing on films of the late 90s, such as, they didn't cite specific examples, but I could figure out what they were kind of talking about, like American Beauty or Fight Club or something like that, where there was so much material at the end of the 90s about how much of a drag it was to be in a steady, well-paying job, and that Uh was sort of the whole thing. But art rebels against normality and conformity, so whatever is going on is what art is going to sort of push against. And 
I think mundane, boring lives were more common in 1985. And obviously times change and we're in a much more uncertain economic world right now. And there's a lot of people who would love to just have like these normal everyday lives as we just kind of describe them yuppies, yuppies in peril kind of a thing with this movie. But this is sort of a trend of these movies where, and I'm going to recommend a couple more at the end of this episode, so I don't really want to spoil everything now, but these people have seemingly okay lives. And then the first chance they get to I know. jump out of them is sort of the whole idea of the movie. And then you it's, can take it even further in those late 90s movies where they really revolt oh yeah. against their own lives. They take the chance to jump out of it, and it usually does serve as some sort of reawakening. Yeah, or in this case, I think it's a warning to never do it yeah. again. <laughs> yeah, a regrettable situation. The cabbie speeds and drives recklessly, and then Paul's $20 bill is blown out of the window of the cab, leaving him with only some change, much to the incredulity of the cab driver, who speeds off, but Paul is basically spared any further retribution. He got the ride for free, essentially. Now you're going into the situation with just no money? Yeah. Well, 97 cents. Yeah, that's true. This was an era that is definitely romanticized about New York City in a sense where everyone seemed to be living in these giant lofts. I know. And I guess they were relatively still affordable for people who are living artistic lives. Seems wild. But certainly would not be the case now. No. I think there was parts of New York that were just considered... Uninhabitable? Borderline. Yeah. They weren't as desirable yeah i think like inflation has gone so crazy in the 40 or so years since this movie came out totally that it's hard to even really imagine this world anymore yeah now it's like everyone is fighting over every four to six hundred square foot apartment spending like thousands of dollars a month on it yeah this loft that kiki and marcy are living in is huge but it seems like that was just something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that it's definitely played up for movies and TV, and I doubt like everyone had one. But it just seems like it's part of a different culture that no longer could possibly exist. I think right. that Soho wasn't as in vogue yet, and it, obviously it's been yeah gentrified further, and the values. I don't know how tr- way true to life the neighborhood they're in in the movie throughout it is, but you basically, you get the vibe that there's a lot of older buildings that aren't really being used for anything. Yeah. Older industrial buildings, even in the area with apartments mixed in. Yeah. It's definitely that used eighties feel. There isn't right. a lot of updated stuff going on in this area for sure. This is the keys scene when he buzzes the loft and the, the keys get thrown out. It's insane. It's very glamorous feeling. You feel very bohemian, like you're just a part of the culture. We're all living in these lofts, yeah, struggling for our art. Not for square footage. No. Once inside, Paul meets Kiki, played by Linda Fiorentino, who is working on a sculpture of a cowering and screaming man. Her voice is just so distinct. Yeah, very seductive. Yes. Cowering and screaming man. <laughs> cowering... <laughs> And screaming okay. man. You sort think of there's a something recurring there? yeah. thing with what's going on in the movie. It's a weird scene and vibe in this loft. There's always the feeling that Paul isn't being told everything. But at no point in the film does it ever feel like he's told everything. And as the audience, we never learn everything. Right. There's always some secret going on that he doesn't know about. 
Marcy's not there. She went to a drugstore. But then she seems to call for some reason while he's there. Paul overhears, and it seems his presence is being discussed. But that plays into another theme of the movie, which is this endless paranoia. Uh Meanwhile, Kiki is very comfortable wearing only a bra and a skirt, asking Paul to take his shirt off so he can... (laughs) So she can wash it for him after he's helped with this plaster of Paris sculpture. Yeah, this whole hangout feels very sexual, really, pretty quickly. And then he offers to give her a shoulder massage, which she accepts. And Bold then there's move. some talk of scars and burning, which is a recurring <laughs> yeah. thing going on. But then she just falls asleep. Yeah, he does tell her that she has a great body. It's very. It's we barely know Marcy, yeah. so he's just firing off in all directions, uh-huh. hoping something will land. Right. While waiting for Marcy to return, Paul is shaken by evidence that she might be covered with burns. There's all kinds of different shit. And it all happens spread out through this time period where yeah, yeah. there's a book, there's, there's some sort of talking like about it. Neosporin's like prescription thing. There's a thing. prescription yeah. thing. All kinds of stuff. At one point, he actually does try to leave right before she comes back, but then she's arriving. Marcy is acting strange and elusive, almost manic phones are ringing kiki starts walking around topless uh-huh there's a couple fucking in the window across the street right which, which he's looking at paul doesn't know what to do and then marcy launches into this whole story to tell him about how she was raped at knife point in that very room for six yep. hours but she slept through most of it hard is- to understand how we're supposed to take this information I know. Something that they probably wouldn't even bother with having in the movie now because I don't even know how you explain your way out of this. Because you're not really sure if it's supposed to be funny, like she's joking. Right. Or what. It doesn't seem like it, but I don't know what she's saying. Well, she's a very tough person to get a read on, for sure. Yeah, and I do think that one of the obstacles that younger audiences and more modern audiences would have with this movie is, is how we're supposed to take... A, Paul in general, who does not seem like a great guy, and B, how the movie treats the peripheral characters, especially the women, who all seem crazy and also have these traumatic things happening that are almost played, I wouldn't say for laughs, but to only put him further in the hole. Uh huh. Like, how do they impact him? Because it's essentially this one wild, crazy night he thinks he's going out to get laid, and then all this crazy shit starts happening. And it'd be like if you were telling your buddy this story, and then you're like, and then she starts telling me about how she was raped for six You know what I mean? It's, like, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. adding onto the pile, but it's treating it so cavalierly where you're like, right. well, this sounds really fucked up. I don't know how we're supposed to process it, but then we're quickly moving on from it. Her character is presented in such a way where you're like, I don't even know if she's telling the truth or... It definitely starts going further down that road with everything that's going on. And maybe like some of the burn stuff is clues to that because there's all of this evidence that she has had some problem with burns, yet we don't actually see that be a problem for her. So what is going on here? Marcy and Paul decide to go out to get coffee, and Paul notices a $20 bill on Kiki's sculpture, but he can't grab it. Mm Mm-hmm. Unclear if that's supposed to be somehow is $20, but yeah, I don't yeah. know how that would have gotten there. Went flying off into the night. Husband was a movie freak. Actually, he was particularly obsessed with one movie. The Wizard of Oz. He 
talked about it constantly. I thought it was cute at first. On our wedding night, I was a virgin. When we made love, you've seen the film, haven't you? The Wizard of Oz? Yeah, I've seen it. Well, when we made love, whenever he, you know, when he came, he just scream out, surrender Dorothy. That's all. Just surrender Dorothy. <laughs> wow. Oh, instead of moaning or saying, oh, God, or something normal like that. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty creepy. <laughs> and I, I told him my thoughts, so, but he just, he just couldn't stop. He just, he just couldn't stop. He just couldn't stop. <laughs> he, he said he didn't even realize it was happening. <laughs> he just couldn't stop. So I just broke the whole thing off. Sorry, I, I guess I'm really putting you through the mill tonight. It's okay, I'm used to it. You know, I still love him very much. In fact, we write each other every day. Naturally, I don't like to talk about it. We have the check. It's on the house. Really? Sure, what the hell. Different rules apply when it gets this late, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, after hours. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Sure, Marcy. Have a good evening. Marcy tells Paul that she's actually married, but that she doesn't really spend any time with her husband, and her husband lives somewhere else. Maybe like one of those marriage of convenience. And he's obsessed with The Wizard of Oz, and she oh, yeah. talks about... Surrender Dorothy? <laughs> when... He makes love to her. <laughs> he, when he climaxes, he says, surrender, Dorothy. <laughs> <laughs> totally normal. And then she says, so I just broke the whole thing off. But like the way that she emphasizes it, you can definitely read into it as if she castrated him or something. I don't think that's uh-huh. literally what she did, right, right, but that's right. like kind of yeah. the whole vibe there. There's this frantic pace to the whole thing, and you're wondering just how much time is even going by because this night already started so late and then all of a sudden they're like, okay, let's go back to the loft. They're constantly the only people at wherever they're going except for, notably, the club later. But they're like the only people in this diner. Yeah. There's like no one at this bar that he ends up in. It's like a deserted area yeah, of town. Yeah. When they get back to the loft, he tries to make a move on Marcy, but she's not into it. Or she's sort of into it and then she stops and then she starts crying. And he's getting frustrated because he really can't get any straight answers out of her. When he asks her questions, she doesn't really answer them. It just kind of Uh goes to something else. Eventually, he does start getting annoyed, and he explodes. And he's like, where are those paperweights? Really? That's what I came (laughs) down here for. (laughs) What type of pot is this? It's Colombian. That's a lie. What? This isn't Colombian. I don't even think it's pot. That's what the guy who sold to me said it was. Well, the guy who sold it to you is a liar. So are you. That's shit. Don't get upset. I just won't buy it from him anymore. That's horse shit. Are you all right? 
Where are those plaster of Paris paperweights, anyway? I mean, that's what I came down here for in the first place. Well, that's not entirely true. I came to see you. But where are the paperweights? That's what I want to see now. What's the matter? I said I want to see a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight. Now cough it up. Right now? Yes, right now. They're in Kiki's bedroom. Then get them. Because as we sit here chatting, there are important papers flying rampant around my apartment because I don't have anything to hold them down with. But let's be real. Everything is just too weird. Absolutely. There's enough clues to just get out of the situation at this point. The way that they have him be so superficial about the potential of her having burns or scars is not great. But there's enough other weirdness going on where it just doesn't seem like this is a good idea anymore. Yeah. Paul abruptly slips out of the apartment and into the night when Marcy goes to the other room. Presumably to get the paperweights, but she goes into Kiki's room and then he slips out. Except now it's raining hard. Besides, his only $20 is long gone. Paul attempts to go home by subway, but the fare has increased to $1.50 at midnight, and he's managed yeah. to scrounge together only $0.97. Cents. I love the interaction with this subway fare dude that he's like trying to haggle with over, because the guy, he's like, can't you just let me go? Or can't you just, whatever, like cover the difference so that I can get on this train? And the guy's like... No, I might get drunk and tell someone at a party that I did it. Yeah, he's like, how would anyone know? He's like, I don't know. I could get drunk and tell someone at a party. <laughs> Completely soaked by the rain, Paul finds a bar nearby called the Terminal Bar. Oh, yeah. The bartender is Tom, played by John Hurd. And the waitress is Julie, played by Terry Garr. Julie immediately becomes enamored with Paul and slips him a note that reads, help, I hate this job. (laughs) That would be like a dream to have happen to you. Yeah, Julie is a woman in her mid to late 30s who is still stuck in a very old-fashioned 60s vibe. And this is probably predating the hipsterism that would make this seem cool and interesting. I do think that in 1985... There's no part of anyone that would think this was cool. She was kind of reminding me of Don Draper's like assistant from the later years of Mad Men. The blonde there? I can't remember okay. off the top of my head. In the bathroom, there is a drawing of the shark biting the penis. When Paul comes out of the bathroom, Julie is sitting at his table, so Paul sits at the bar. He's clearly not interested. We'll get into this more later, but I sure. don't understand why he's not more interested in Julie. Makes zero sense. Tom tells him there has been a string of robberies in the neighborhood, specifically his building. Tom offers to give Paul the money for the subway fare, but he is unable to open the cash register. Paul and Tom then end up exchanging keys as a security measure so that Paul can go to Tom's place to fetch the cash register key. Seems like this would have been a problem earlier in the night before this. Well, yeah, it's one of those things. Everything in this movie is like it's working against Paul. Right, right. So it's at that moment that it gets stuck. Yeah, yeah. Everything about going into this apartment is terrible. It's 
insane. Yeah. He decides to go into the bathroom and wash his face or something. I don't know. And then he tries to flush the toilet. The toilet oh, starts overflowing. That's totally something out of my life. Yeah. He also gets confronted on the way out of suspicious people thinking he's the burglar. But leaving Tom's apartment, Paul actually spots the two burglars, Neil and Pepe, played by none other than Cheech and Chong, <laughs> showing up. They're actually loading Kiki's sculpture into a van. It's another one of the things that kind of adds to the tone of the movie. You know, you've talked about some pretty dark things. Obviously, like her saying that she was raped, but she was sleeping through it. And then it's like, how, how are we supposed to interpret that? But then it's like, we have Cheech and Chong showing up. as yeah. It's just like this weird tone. Paul confronts them and they drop the statue for whatever reason, making yet another foolish decision. Paul returns the sculpture to Kiki and Marcy's apartment rather than just go get the fair home yeah. from Tom. A mistake, I'd say. Everything he does is a mistake. Yeah. Kiki actually does throw the keys out to him and then he finds out that Kiki's a little tied up. And so he thinks that Kiki was tied up by the thieves neil and pepe but then she says neil and pepe bought the tv yeah and he's like looking at the how she's tied up and he's like this is a really complicated knot <laughs> were they like sailors or something <laughs> then it becomes clear that she's actually just tied up as part of some sort of a bondage yeah, scene like with a... this guy horst <laughs> played by will Patton, in a sort of a shocking appearance from him. normally sort of the the straight guy in a lot of movies <laughs> and so it's clear that kiki and horst are involved in some bdsm play and they both insist that he go apologize to Marcy, who's still back in her bedroom. So at this point, he's brought the sculpture back. But again, and this is why this movie's so insane, at no point does Kiki actually explain anything. No, no. She says that they bought her TV, but then he, she goes, what are you doing with the sculpture? But right. like, there's no follow-up to that. <laughs> he never gets any explanation. Yeah. So he never really knows what's going on. And the audience doesn't really know what's going so on. So it's supposed to be that they bought the TV, but they stole the sculpture? No, because later they're talking about how they bought the sculpture. Right, right. Okay. He's like, the one time I bought something, man, it gets ripped off. <laughs> After the encouragement to go apologize to Marcy, Paul heads back to her bedroom. However, he discovers that Marcy has committed suicide. This is a shocking turn of events. And the first time I saw the film, I kept expecting it not to be real Same. somehow. Same. Because it, it just it seems feels like so unexpected. You feel like he's going to leave the scene th thinking she's dead, and then she's just going to show up at some other part in the movie. Yeah. That's the way it feels like. How everything has gone up to this point. It just feels like that's what's going to happen. Yeah, but part of that is just how your brain is conditioned. Yeah, yeah. You think that she's a main character and that this is about them somehow getting together right, or right. whatever. Yeah. But that's not the case. And there is a callousness to how this is treated in the movie for comedic effect, I think. Uh-huh. But it's sort of hard to adjust to that, especially when you're used to how movies are now, which would never treat this like this. It's not exactly just for laughs but it's definitely at least partially for laughs it, you, it's used later yeah for laughs well the fact that he's hanging up signs that say dead girl this way dead person yeah, yeah dead person this way arrow if you pay close attention you see tom's name on the prescription for the second all that she overdoses on uh -huh. which is sort of a little hint of what's to come and it's a huge stunner it's tonally a wild choice 
he's taking the opportunity to look at her body for scars of which we don't see any it's sort of exploitative because she's just wearing underwear and no bra or anything she's almost naked and he yeah. takes the blanket off of her not that he does anything too crazy but it is weird but we don't actually see any scars right. or burns so we don't know what they're talking about the whole time yeah and it's never explained at any point there's no, never no. an answer as to what the fuck is going on kiki and horst have already left to go to a place called Club Berlin. Paul calls 911 to report Marcy's death, but then remembers that he needs to return Tom's keys. And so he does leave the door to the loft open with signs saying dead person with arrows pointing to the back bedroom. Yeah. Which again feels like it's for laughs. For sure, yeah. yeah it's yeah. definitely for laughs. And, and some of the stuff that comes up later at the bar with Tom right it's almost like sick laughs yeah yeah on his way back to terminal bar paul encounters julie the waitress who tells him that she quit her job just mid-shift paul does not care (laughs) i do get that he's at a point where he's not receptive to this i get that yeah yeah there's there's way too much going on and at a certain point if if there's anything that i buy in this movie it is just his undying feeling to just want to get back home and like when you get in that mode there is just nothing that interests you you just need to be back home and in your bed and this night needs to be over however the bar is closed and locked up with a sign indicating tom will be back in half an hour which is always a frustrating move because you have no idea right when that half hour started Is it going to be the whole half hour, or could he be back in five minutes now because it's been 25 minutes since he put the sign up? Who knows? With nowhere else to go, Paul accepts an invite to Julie's apartment to wait for Tom. Her behavior is equally as strange and unnerving as Marcy's was earlier. As I said, she's stuck in the 60s. She's got the beehive hairdo. She's got the shelf full of Aquanet. Yeah, I don't know. Rocking it well, though. I'm into the beehive hair. Do you like the monkeys? She puts on the monkeys and starts dancing. I love these dance moves. Full disclosure to our listeners, there were some texts between Matt and myself exchanged specifically about Julie. (laughs) We have similar tastes sometimes. I just sent you a picture of her, and I knew you would get it. Yeah. Because it's crazy that he just treats her as, like, nothing. I think she's unbelievably attractive. I'm with you. Maybe Terry Gar isn't for everybody, but... There's definitely an era of Terry Gar that I'm all about, and this is yeah. still a part of it. And this look, and I, th- I, be- I love it. I guess probably for the time of this movie, she's supposed to look odd and like stand out, but I don't feel that way. Like she, she stands out to me in like a positive way. If they were going for the idea that she's supposed to be much older, then they needed to cast somebody even older. Yeah. Oh, which, by the way, he does kind of get into a thing with a much older woman later in the movie. <laughs> At that point, I think he's yeah lost Just his whatever. mind. Right. But yeah. She is older than Griffin Dunn by over a decade, I think. So there, that, or okay. about, you know, right. maybe not a full decade, but something like that. So I do think that that's part of it, but they don't really play on that or anything. It just seems that she's obsessed with this 60s look and 60s music, and but not in a good way. And then, no, no, <laughs> acts weird. Definitely. Paul is having a complete and total breakdown in her apartment. There's mouse traps all around her bed, which is also another sort of <laughs> it's actually frightening potential castration move. Although later we do actually do see like a rat get 
cotton one, yes. which she completely doesn't react to. <laughs> so you think this might be like a normal occurrence? Well, if you have that many traps yeah. around your bed. I know. <laughs> I know it's a joke, but the reality of this is like you're stepping out of your bed, literally like breaking toes every morning. She just wears shoes to bed. Yeah. Yeah. There's some wild emotions going on in this apartment, first from Paul breaking down and then Julie's reactions to perceived slights and the the idea that she might be rejected also is bringing wild emotions. Yeah. It's a sad scene for her. When Paul sees Tom return, because Julie's apartment is right across the street from the bar, he goes down only for Tom to then get a call informing him of the death of Marcy, who was actually Tom's girlfriend. Hmm. Or ex-girlfriend, it's unclear. Immediately you're jumping to the idea that, is it him that was raping her? You're not really sure. Seemed like they had a tumultuous relationship. I'd say so. Tom is blaming himself for telling her to get out of the apartment or whatever. Yeah. Right before he answers the phone, Paul is confessing to him. He's like, hey, I think I got myself caught in a situation with one of your waitresses. And Tom is like, beehive hairdo, 1965, whatever. And he's like, yeah. He's like, all right, we'll run out on her. What's she going to do? Yeah, Kill really. herself? Yeah. <laughs> then he answers the phone. <laughs> yeah, that is funny. Then, after he's reeling from this news about Marcy, it's all clicking with Paul. Okay, this is the same girl. He doesn't know that I came down here to try to get with his girlfriend. I don't right. know, really know what to say. And he's like, hey, man, I'm so sorry. I don't know what to say. And then that gay couple, those dudes are like, well, what could you say? It's not like it's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, God. Yeah. So, yeah, there is some laughs about the suicide. Sure. <laughs> we can't really, can't really ignore it at a certain point. How about a drink? Looks like you could use one. You don't happen to have any powerful aphrodisiacs back there, do you? She won't put out, huh? No, it's, it's not for her. It's for me. I seem to have gotten myself involved with... Um, one of your cocktail waitresses. Miss Beehive, 1965. Yes. Don't even ask me how. So take off. What's she gonna do, kill herself? Terminal. Mm-hmm. What's up, Rich? Just give me my keys. I'm going to go home. What's the matter? The... My... My girlfriend... just killed herself. A while ago, took some sleeping pills. Jesus Christ. Oh, no. He, uh, we had an argument. I told her she had to get out of the apartment. I, I, it's my fault. God. Marcy. 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 Marcy.
I don't know what to say. Can you say? After all, it wasn't your fault. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna be right back, okay? Try to stay calm. Overcome with guilt, Paul rushes back to Julie's apartment because now he's afraid that she's going to kill herself yeah. because he's like, these crazy women, I don't know. I promised I would come back, and I did. As a present for returning, she gives him a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight <laughs> made by Kiki Bridges. Of course. Are you all right? Well, yes. You said two minutes, though. I know, I know. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Did you miss me? Like, I've never missed anyone in my whole life, is how much I missed you. Really? I can't believe how much I missed you. I just, I really did miss you. I must. Very sweet. I'm gonna give you a present. Don't do that. That's really not necessary at all. I mean, I've only known you, what? An hour. No, no, no. You said that you were gonna come back, and you did. And these days, that is something to be commended and rewarded. Do you know what this is? No. This is a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight. I bought it from a local artist, Kiki Bridges. Did you ever hear of her? Julie? I promised I would come back, and I did. Now, I really do have to go. I gotta sleep. You understand that, don't you? And I promise I'm gonna see you again. I will. Okay? You all right? Why do you keep asking me that, huh? What's with you? Are you nuts or something? Let's exchange phone numbers. You wanna do that? Phone numbers? Yeah, come on. It's a great idea. Okay? okay? Here, I'll write it on this. Okay, what's your number? My number is 54433. Very easy to remember. 54433. Five, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Not enough numbers, but okay. 54433. Five, four, three, three. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, KL54433. Okay. Okay. Sorry, sorry. Oh, God. Please, get that away from me. Jesus. Oh, really? One thing that you sort of have to pay attention to is that Julie has sketched him the first time that he was in the apartment. She's, like, drawing him. (laughs) Which is a fun quirk for someone to just immediately start doing that. But Paul levels with her, like, look, lady, we can exchange phone numbers, whatever, but I have to leave. I have to go to sleep. He's trying to let her down gently, but she's not really accepting it. I do think that one of the funniest parts of this movie is when she gives him her phone number and she just like says five digits and right he just goes well not really enough digits but okay <laughs> just sort of like, <laughs> yes. and then she's like explaining that she meant like kl5 or whatever the fuck people used to say for I phone get, numbers. yeah okay that used to be like a thing right. they would say the letters instead of the numbers for i don't know and he's like oh okay <laughs> just like how he's just like well not really enough digits but okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But when Paul bounces this time, he makes two mistakes. First, 
he takes that bagel and cream cheese paperweight and throws it, which upsets Julie. Absolutely. And sends her over the edge. I did feel like that was sort of a dick move. He, had, it, he was getting to a good place with this interaction. Yeah, he was letting her down. Everything was calm, and then this throws everything back into chaos. And then the second thing is he waited too long. Well, it's a combination. He waited yeah. too long to go back to the bar, but he also ran out of the bar in the first place because he was so worried about Julie where he just didn't get his keys back. So now he has to try to track down Tom again, but Tom's not there because now Tom is going to identify the body, which is beyond horrifying. <laughs> yeah, He's like continuously closing the bar for like 30 minutes at a time. It's like clerks. Yeah. Neil and Pepe are actually the thieves, we finally learned, but they did pay for the sculpture, evidently, and now they're terrified every time they see Paul right. running around. They're like, it's that guy again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Paul goes in search of Tom to try and get his keys back, but Tom is not at his apartment either. In Tom's building, Paul encounters some neighbors again who believe he might be the robber, and he has to hide to avoid them. His next move is to try and track down Kiki and Horst at Club Berlin, presumably to just inform them as to what has happened to Marcy. One of Scorsese's inputs involves the dialogue between Paul and the doorman at Club Berlin, inspired by Franz Kafka's Before the Law, one of the short stories included in his novel The Trial. As Scorsese explained to Paul Atanzio, the short story reflected his frustration toward the production of The Last Temptation of Christ, for which he had to continuously wait as Joseph K. had to in the trial. So the bouncer at okay. Club Berlin keeps telling him he just has to wait. Yeah. And then it's sort of the same thing that happens in the Kafka story, which is I guess maybe he the offers whole... the money, yeah, yeah. and then he's like, I wanted you to make sure you tried everything kind right. of thing. The whole movie in and of itself could be described as Kafka-esque, which is work characterized by nightmarish settings in which characters are crushed by nonsensical blind authority, Thus, the word Kafkaesque is often applied to bizarre and impersonal administrative situations where the individual feels powerless to understand or control what is happening. Now, there isn't necessarily the administrative element to that, but the character is powerless to control what is happening. It seems like everything is working against him. An example of something Kafkaesque is if someone is evicted, loses their job, loses a family or friend, and has their car break down all in the same day. The situation is Kafkaesque because of the suffering and the magnitude and the culmination of horrifying events all at the same time. Sounds like my whole life is Kafkaesque. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah thanks. But it sort of applies to the whole story in general, and then it's, there's like a little microcosm in this interaction right. with the bouncer outside of Club Berlin. May I enter? I can't let you in at the moment. Will it be possible to be uh, admitted? Uh, at a more convenient time for the club? It is possible, but not at the moment. If you're so drawn to it, try and force your way in. Got any money? Yes, I have money. Is that what you want? Money? Why didn't you just ask for that in the first place, man? Here, it's not much, but it's all I've got. I'll take your money, because I don't want you to feel you left anything untried. You keep the quarter. You'll still have to wait a few minutes. Okay, Mark. Why doesn't he have to wait a few minutes? Tonight is Mohawk night. If you had a Mohawk, you could go in. 
come on. We're both adults. Why don't you just let me in? You really want to go inside? Yes, you know, it's very important. I've got people in there. They're expecting me. Why don't you just let me in? You sure? Yes, I'm sure. Paul finally gains admittance into the club by essentially agreeing to have his head shaved into a mohawk because it's mohawk night. He tries to escape and calls out to Kiki and Horst, who are across the room, but they can't hear him over the punk music. He does manage to slip out with only a little piece of his hair being shaved. There's a brief little cameo from Scorsese himself. Yes, with the, the light shining the light down. I saw that. Fortunate for him here because I don't think he would rock the mohawk look well. Probably not. No. It might be hard to go back to your data entry job. <laughs> yeah. Back at Kiki's, he does take the $20 bill from the sculpture. I'm not even entirely sure why he goes back there other than maybe to get it and to see if they've actually come for Marcy at this yeah. point. Although he would have had to have known because Tom got the call, so I don't know. He does notice the vigilante mob forming outside. and Absolutely. It plays into that whole thing where just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that they're not after you because it's like <laughs> this growing sense of dread and paranoia. And it's like, yeah, they actually are forming a vigilante mob and they're looking for you. Right. And it's only going to get worse once <laughs> Julie gets involved. Uh-huh. <laughs> With the $20 bill, Paul tries hailing a cab, but it ends up being the same cab driver that he ripped off earlier. Huh, so the fortuitous. cab driver snatches that $20 bill and drives away. (laughs) Oh, God. Nothing goes right at any point. Getting out of the cab is an ice cream truck driver named Gail, played by Catherine O'Hara, who invites Paul back to her apartment so that she can dress a wound on his arm because she banged into him by getting out of a cab. Right. And folks, yeah, you guessed it. She's crazy, too. (laughs) She seems so gregarious at first. I like to think of After Hours as a Home Alone prequel. Yeah, I think so. Both of the McAllister parents are in this film. <laughs> they do talk to each other eventually. Uh huh. This is where they met. It's where it all started. They settled down, moved to Chicago, had a big family. Yeah, yeah. Although I don't, I don't think she was driving that ice cream truck anymore. No, it seems like she would have had to have had some kids already by yeah. 1985. That's probably right. <laughs> I think even Kevin McAllister would have had to have been bored by this point. (laughs) I think so. And he wasn't even near the oldest. Yeah. Paul just wants to go home. Just wants to go home. He tries to call information to get, I think, his friend Bronson Pinchot's number. Yeah. And she keeps fucking with him by saying the numbers. (laughs) Like, he'll be like, okay, 243-5544. And then she'll be like, six, two, Uh five... (laughs) But is it because she's trying to get him to stay at that point, or she's just driving him nuts? I don't think she's trying to get him to stay. I think no. she's just being annoying. You're right, but what's the alternative? <laughs> if she's not helping him accomplish well, nobody his goal... in the film ever appreciates his situation. Correct. Like they just don't get it on yeah. his level. Right. And I think she just fits into that mold where she doesn't really get yeah. what's going on. But would eventually decide that she's going to help him. Yeah, Gail wants to give Paul a ride home in her Mr. Softy truck. But right before they get in, she spots a sign with a drawing of Paul claiming that he's the neighborhood burglar. It, it's Julie's sketch, although Paul doesn't see it yet, so he doesn't really know what's going on. She's blowing like a rape whistle. I know. Getting everyone's attention. And there's like no one around ever, but somehow all of a sudden everybody... The vigilante mobs yeah. right around the corner. 
They pursue Paul on foot while Gail pursues in her ice cream truck. He climbs up a fire escape, witnesses a wife kill her husband <laughs> in a window across the fire escape. And then in maybe the most narcissistic line ever. <laughs> I'm probably going to get blamed for that, too. Yeah. <laughs> he then encounters a man in a little pocket of the city which doesn't really resemble New York at all to me. I'm like, yeah. where is this? Right. It looks like almost a small town or something. Uh-huh. There's a mix-up where this man is looking for a homosexual encounter, and Paul goes with him to his apartment, and then <laughs> in one of the more hilarious moments, he just decides to unburden himself with his whole story to this man, yeah. just telling him every single thing. <laughs> Paul tries to call the police, but the police are not interested in what he's saying. They're like, okay, yeah, all right, because he's telling them about the vigilante mob, Yeah, yeah. and they just hang up on him. <laughs> From the window of the man's apartment, Paul spots Julie hanging posters on streetlights. He runs after her, but she takes off. I love how dedicated to this night she has now become. Well, yeah, but then it's only topped by Gail, who for some reason is leading the vigilante mob by the end of the movie. (laughs) Yeah. Paul realizes that as payback for rejecting her, Julie used her sketch of him for this wanted poster. His response looking at it. Oh, no. <laughs> and I guess I didn't think about it before, but she did work in like the Xerox store yeah. downstairs. So maybe that's how they got all these copies out. Oh, yeah. yeah. They definitely planted that seed. Paul finds Tom at the diner. It's the same diner he went to with Marcy. It's also the same diner that at one point he ordered a hamburger just so the guy would let him use the bathroom. And then he ran out on yeah. it. <laughs> but the mob which now includes Julie, Gale, and a Mr. Softy truck, interrupt before Paul can actually get his keys back from Tom. But also hilarious in this scene, the guy actually brings out a burger and coffee for him. Yeah, <laughs> and just looks at him yeah. like, you better fucking eat this <laughs> yeah. and pay for it. But of course he doesn't, he runs right. out again. He ends up getting chased out of the diner because even though he tells Tom, like, look, I'm not this guy, you know, because you gave me your keys, I could have robbed you blind, but right, I didn't. Right. Tom sort of just gets sucked into it and... He's out there on the street meeting his future wife. Oh, yeah. A punk girl comes into the diner before he runs out and gives him this invitation to Club Berlin. And if you look closely at it, it's talking about like some conceptual art installation or uh-huh. something. So he goes back to Club Berlin, and this part is very weird. It's, it ends up feeling surreal because you're not sure if this is supposed to be real. Right. Or if this is the art installation. is like It almost seems like it's a deserted after hours yeah, club yeah. or something or like a diner or something i don't know i it's love weird. that they were like giving you the times as you like went along through the movie like just no idea what time it is yeah well i guess what time were places closing in new york in the 80s is i mean like 4 I, th- I think that it was still 4 a.m but if you were in parts of the city that were less populated they still would close earlier you know well, Club Berlin, I think, usually does some business, but they're doing this weird thing. And yeah, that's yeah. what is weird about this part, because it was packed with people the last time he was there. Now there's no one there, but he got that invitation, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Paul uses his last quarter to play Is That All There Is by Peggy Lee. He asks a woman named June, played by Verna Bloom, who's just sitting there to dance, Paul explains to her that he's being pursued, and June, also a sculptor, who happens to live in the club's basement, offers to help him. The mob comes into the club and then eventually down into June's apartment, 
How? June protects Paul by disguising him as a sculpture with plaster all over him. How the mob knows that he's there? I don't think yeah, I don't know. Field. It yeah. seems like they were just going door to door, but then it seems like... They're very insistent. Yeah, they, it there, seems though. like they think he's there for some reason. Maybe they saw him go in. I don't yeah. know, but it seems like they would have got there faster then. Right. Very committed to this on both parties, that she spends the time paper macheing him and that he's actually going to sit through this. I don't think this would be a quick operation. Yeah, I don't know. They try to make it seem like she's got that metal cage thing or something that he can get into, and then she can kind of close it quickly around him or something that's with some piece that she's already kind of been working on that basically resembles the same sculpture that Kiki made uh-huh. earlier in the film with the crouching, yeah, yeah. screaming, scared man, whatever. Right. Arms up. Imagine living in this apartment. Yikes. It seems scary. So her exit is to get into the club, which is an insane right. punk club, first of all. Second of all, the basement is as horrifying as a place you could imagine. Yeah, yeah. It's like where the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live. So Julie has all of those mousetraps around her bed. Yeah, yeah. I can't even imagine what's going on Yikes. in that basement. Right. Plus, isn't there like a sewer entrance to this as well? Don't Cheech and Chong make their way in? Yeah, that's sort of like the street thing or something. I don't know. It's a wild scene. It doesn't seem like a place that people would actually live, let alone a woman who seems to be like in her 50s or something. It's very bleak and depressing. Totally. But also at the same time, though, without having any real firsthand knowledge, it seems sort of believable in a weird way because, I don't know, we often talk about these various time periods in New York City, whether it's Summer of Sam or any of the other movies we've ever done, but... It just seems like in this mid-80s time period that this could be just as believable as people living in these lofts. I don't know. It actually works, this hiding in the sculpture, and the mob leaves. However, June doesn't let Paul out of the plaster even when the coast is clear. The plaster hardens, trapping Paul in a position that resembles Kiki's sculpture. Neil and Pepe break into the apartment and steal him, putting him in the back of their van... They drive off, only for Paul to fall from the van fortuitously right outside the gate to his office building, breaking him free from the plaster as the sun is rising. Paul brushes himself off and goes to his desk, bringing it all full circle. Oh, yeah. Back to the start of the movie. I've definitely... That same musical number hits. Yeah, the... Classic music. Classical classical, music. I've definitely heard people who have lived in New York City during the formative years, and they say that this movie is what it's like when you're young and Uh everything's open late. Right. And you don't know how you drag yourself to work the next day because you're still in that mindset of, I'm invincible and I can party, but places are open even later than other cities. Right. It's this endless thing. This is obviously a little more heightened and crazy, Uh but just that idea of like, okay, well, I got to work now. (laughs) No sleep. Yeah, rough. Could not go back to those days. <laughs> yeah. It, well, a at few... a certain age, it just gets sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying. Right. British director Michael Powell took part in the production process of the film. Powell and editor Thelma Schumacher married soon afterward. Nobody was sure how the film should end. Powell said that Paul must finish up back at work. But this was initially dismissed as too unlikely and difficult. They tried many other endings, and a few were even filmed. 
but the one that everyone felt really worked was to have Paul finish up back at work just as the new day was starting. Which is funny and weird because I, I think that it is the perfect ending and it seems almost too perfect uh-huh. to act like that couldn't be the ending. But I, I do think that Scorsese showed it to his father, his mother and father, with an ending where he's just stuck in that sculpture and he's being driven off by Neil and Pepe. And his dad was like, you can't have him die. Like, he's got to get out. And yeah, yeah. It, like, it, it just wasn't a satisfying ending to have it end like that. And I No, think, I think this is the right ending. Yeah, because it, it almost is its own message in a way where all of this crazy shit happens and then you just got to carry on. With life, I know. life back. But it's also usual. like he still can't get home, <laughs> and now he's got like the whole day at work. Yeah, but at least he's back all the way uptown, yeah, or yeah. wherever he is, and who knows? <laughs> it's tough. Yeah, it's definitely a quintessential '80s movie that I think is under the radar for a lot of people. It it does have a dvd release which i'm not sure if that's still in print probably not but it's probably out there somewhere it was never released on blu-ray it's long been rumored for the criterion collection it's one of those ones that seems like it was heavily implied it was coming and then it just hasn't come so no one's really sure what's going on with it by the time they get to it they might as well do a 4k if they're still doing it who knows but you will find it on streaming from time to time i don't think it's available to stream for free right now which is unfortunate it used to be on hbo max that's where i first watched it i actually ended up just purchasing it on voodoo i know that i always preach buy physical media but i do have a small collection of voodoo films as well there you go usually there's a reason behind each of them it's not just avoiding blu-rays obviously as you look around my apartment (laughs) yeah I have quite an extensive collection, ladies. Totally. If you're interested. <laughs> but yeah, I ended up just purchasing it to do for this podcast because I was like, you know, that'll just be easier than renting it. That way I can revisit it a couple times. Totally. I'll have it in my stash there for when they finally get to a fucking Criterion Blu-ray right. or whatever. It's one of those films that I think gets slightly overrated just because people feel like it's their thing because it's not as common as totally, a lot of the totally. other Scorsese ones. But, but it is cool. Yeah. It's fun and interesting to see Scorsese work in this kind of a film, this genre. It's it's much different from anything else he's done. And that one-two punch with this and The Color of Money, it's like a whole other oh, yeah. world for Scorsese. Right. That 80s urban but not gangster kind of world. Totally. I don't really know how to explain yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Yeah. I do think that we'll probably do The Color of Money on the show at some point, too. So we'll hit both of those up. All right. Yeah. And don't fret. There will actually potentially be some more Scorsese coming up this year. So stay tuned for that. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. And now let's get into recommendations. I have two. I have two also. I'll just do both of mine first because okay. it all ties together all right. with this movie. To fit in with the Yuppie and Peril, one wild night version of that, I would say some very similar films that came out around the same time. 
one of which I did show you into the night. Oh yes. Which I think I may have recommended on here before. I can't really remember. It's it doesn't okay really matter, right. but this one it fits in with this. It came out in 1985 yes. as well. It was directed by John Landis. It's nowhere near as good, but it's fun because it's a young Jeff Goldblum and a young Michelle Pfeiffer. She's sort of the one that inadvertently more or less lures him into this one crazy night he's sort of an unhappy guy in right. an unhappy marriage and gets sucked into a crazy night with this woman it's a lot of fun absolutely i don't think it's as good or as artistic or as interesting as this film after hours but it's fun and then the next year a film that was actually released on criterion which is jonathan demi's something wild uh-huh. starring jeff daniels and Melanie. Melanie Griffith and Ray Liotta right. in a part that convinced Scorsese to cast him in okay. Goodfellas. Something Wild, I would say, is also not as good as After Hours, although I think it's a little better than Into the Night. Again, very similar. It's not exactly a one crazy night. It's more of a one crazy couple of days kind of a thing. It's right. a continuous yeah, thing. Yeah. But he really gets carried away into a, a whole world. Yeah, I think his life is sort of collapsing secretly yeah. you don't really find out the truth but i think it's he got divorced right his wife isn't dead yeah i think it's just something like that right right, right. it's been a while now but yeah that seems right yeah very similar vibe you have sort of a young full of life woman who's a little bit wilder and then she pulls this like straight boring business guy into this adventure adventure yeah Everyone who has a boring nine-to-five existence sort of fantasizing about what would happen if I met this gorgeous woman who took me away from here and I got to experience a different side of life, that kind of a thing. Unfortunately, neither of those movies are streaming for free either, so everything is essentially a streaming rental, which sucks, but that's just how it is right now. Something Wild is available on Criterion Blu-ray and Into the Night. I think there's like a Shout Factory, which I have. Yeah, yeah. They are available as physical media, but I don't think people are going to rush out to buy it. So just check yeah. that out on streaming rentals. If if you do happen to watch After Hours because of this podcast and then you want to see movies that are like it, those two fit the bill. Both of my recommendations also may not be streaming anywhere, and I, I definitely just watched on physical media recently. The first one, I'll stick in New York City. I watched the Kino Lorber, The Wanderers. Have you watched this before? I have not. I really liked it. It seems like a lot of people compare it to the Warriors because the names are similar and it's also about fictitious gangs in New York, kind of. But it's like this weird teen movie. Karen Allen is in it. Super cute. And it's almost like parts that seem like surreal, though, too. I don't know. It was really cool. And music has worked into it a lot in a way that almost reminds you of like American Graffiti. But it also has its overall very own feel it was definitely like a cool movie and i would definitely recommend checking it out and then also the other one that i just watched recently well it was a rewatch but i watched the 4k of out of sight and was really loving that movie the chemistry between clooney and jennifer lopez in that movie off the charts yeah there's just something to it that you're just drawn to it yeah it's a very sexy movie without being explicit there's yeah. no like nudity or anything like that but it's still very sexy oh yeah fun i can yeah. l- listen to those two talk about old hollywood movies that's definitely a movie that we'll be covering in the future 
Sweet. I have the 4K as well. I, I'm pretty sure that that's probably streaming somewhere. So I would I'll, think. I'll check into yeah. it. Okay. Linda Mann's also in Definitely. Wanderers. Yep, yep. I was looking it up. That was directed by Philip Kaufman, right. who did like the Body Snatchers, the famous one, I think, in the 70s. Yeah, on the Kino Lorber thing, there's this whole little thing at the beginning that he wrote like about the movie and basically like... It's a you know one of these things that the directors do where it's like this should have been like a bigger movie and stuff. <laughs> yeah, because he basically says studios didn't want this because it was nobody wanted to see movies like for teenagers or whatever. <laughs> yeah, there's always some excuse. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, we'll keep this one pretty short. As I said, we're recording this the same time we did Adventureland, so the apartment's getting hot because we shut the air conditioner off. This movie itself is is pretty short and breezy. I would definitely recommend seeking it out. I'm sure a lot of our listeners like Scorsese. Many of them may have seen After Hours, but if you haven't, you should check it out. Give it a second viewing if you've only seen it once, because I think it does take a little bit of time to grow on you, because yeah, for it, sure. it just emotionally, it's not the same as what you might be expecting. And I think people could get thrown by that the weird tone. Definitely. And yeah, you do have to sort of look past some stuff and and be a little less uh, empathetic, right? <laughs> Just kind of kind of be callous about it. <laughs> anyway, folks, thanks so much for listening. Follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod, and make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review if you get a chance. We love to see it. Hit us up on Twitter. Let us know if you'd like a free sticker, and we'll mail that to you. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. And thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.
Just a shade under a decade, too. All right. You know, a lot of people go to college for seven years. I know. They're called doctors. <laughs>